Hello and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Kuskila and I'm once again delighted to be joined by my co-host and the editor of Gold, Helena Beer. How are you today, Helena? I'm great, thank you, Mark. Thrilled to have published the latest edition of Gold today. Ah, of course. It's a much-anticipated issue, so can you give our listeners a taster of what to expect? I can indeed. So this issue focuses very much on digital and digital transformation in particular. We're looking at it from all kinds of angles, like the reality of the metaverse, the rise of social media marketing, gamification and moving past paperless. We also continue our series on emerging markets by looking at South Africa's rise to being one of the pharma frontrunners. This issue really is gold at its best. So do head over to the website to download it and give it a read at www w.emg-gold.com. I couldn't agree more. It's a fantastic issue, but we've also got a fantastic episode of the podcast for our listeners today. So what do we have in store? Well, we have a great interview with Aaron Grandy, Associate Director of Alira Health and co-founder of Precision Healthcare Consulting. We talk about access across the African and European continents. And we've also got a brilliant conversation between Gold's Assistant Editor, Isabel O'Brien, and Lawrence Bullard, Director of On The Pulse Consultancy, about the latest in the haemophilia landscape. But before all of that, let's kick things off with things you might have missed. So, Helena, what's been going on in the news recently? Well, as we are all acutely aware, the war in Ukraine is still ongoing and humanitarian efforts to aid the country have been pouring in at full force. While many consumer brands and businesses have been pulling out of Russia in a stand against the invasion of Ukraine, it's generally understood that the pharmaceutical industry can't simply stop providing life-saving medicines to the Russian people. This week, Abvi has pledged to donate all profits made in Russia to Ukrainian relief efforts, joining the growing roster of companies such as Merck & Co, Eli Lilly, Pfizer and GSK, who are all doing the same. Yes, this announcement comes a month after Abvi halted all sales and distribution of its athletic products in the region, and it's also stopped all new clinical studies and enrolment for trials. Now, in lighter news, I recently saw the launch of our Africa by Merck Foundation, a 30-minute TV show featuring prominent figures in the African art and fashion space to raise awareness around health issues in the continent. This first-of-its-kind awareness campaign is produced and directed by Senator Rasha Kellaj, Managing Director and CEO of Merck Foundation. It is hoped that it opens conversations around issues such as preventing and treating diabetes, breaking stigma around infertility and much more. The first episode is already out and is being broadcast across Kenya, Uganda and Ghana. Now, moving on to the first of today's interviews, I spoke with Aaron Grandy, Associate Director of Alira Health and co-founder of the startup Precision Healthcare Consulting. We discussed access across both the African and European continents, cell and gene therapy, and his digital health plans. That's right. Aaron is very well accomplished with a PhD in molecular biology, an MBA, and as Mark mentioned, the establishment of a startup company all under his belt. All this has made for a brilliant and insightful conversation. So let's have a listen. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for joining us. Now, as mentioned, you're currently an Associate Director in Market Access at Alira Health, and we'll be getting into that a little later on in the chat. But 
First, I wanted to discuss the startup you recently established in Nigeria, GoMed, which you founded in 2021 with two other partners, focuses primarily on improving health outcomes for patients in Africa by helping them access the healthcare products that they need. Could you tell us about why you decided to form this startup and give us a bit of a brief overview of its aims? Yeah, sure, Mark, no problem. Thanks a lot for this question. Um, in fact, I've been interested in the unique challenges and opportunities in Africa for a long time. Access to pharmaceutical products and healthcare services in countries like Nigeria is significantly different than what we have here in Europe. For example, in Europe, many of our challenges, they revolve around pricing, keeping budgets in check, proving cost effectiveness and so on. While in Africa, many times the issues are around supply chain. Uh, limited regulation from the government, high levels of corruption, and oftentimes products can be spoiled, out of date, or even counterfeit by the time they reach patients. This is coupled with issues like limited education towards healthcare, social stigma or embarrassment for certain products such as sexual health products, and serious affordability issues means that many preventable health, health issues in, uh, um, that are absent in Europe are very rampant in African countries. So this is something I've been aware of for a long, long time now, and I've been actively thinking how I might use the skills that I have and the experiences that I have in tackling access issues in Europe by translating that to Africa. Fast forward a couple of years, and I was lucky enough to get introduced to my partners, Eric and Anthony, who are also trying to make a bridge between their own experiences working in Finland to Africa, and specifically Nigeria, where my partner Anthony actually comes from originally. So Eric has a background in data and technology, Anthony in business and finance. And so coupled with my own experiences in medicines and, and market access, we set out to try and solve many of these issues that Africans face when trying to get access to healthcare. Great, thank you. And how do you plan on achieving these goals? Yeah, so in short, with smart, efficient and world-class technology, but I'll come to that in a moment. So in 2021, one of the first things we did was collect a large amount of primary research data directly from Nigeria. So my partner, Anthony, uh, he moved back there. Uh, he spent the next five months going to local pharmacies, talking with the pharmacists about the issues that they and their uh, patients face on a daily basis. And this is where it all started. This is where the business ideas formed. We spoke to well over 100 pharmacies. We learned a lot of interesting things. First and foremost, uh, these pharmacies are the first and potentially only point of contact for people seeking healthcare in Nigeria. This is because a lot of patients there pay everything out of pocket, including doctor fees. And for an average Nigerian, this is super expensive. So they skip that step. They go directly to their local trusted pharmacist who then behaves something like a doctor. Um, these pharmacists, they, they recommend products. They can even sort of prescribe medicines. So they play a very different role in the whole healthcare uh, system. Secondly, many of these pharmacies had massive issues in supply, stock, and storage. In these stores, they're mostly mom and pop shops. They lack the capital to invest in their own businesses and therefore can run out of medicines. Or when they do have them in stock, it's some, they sometimes lack the facilities to store them properly. This can result in spoiled or outdated medicines ultimately being sold to patients, unfortunately. Thirdly, Many of the pharmacists, they told us about these barriers that patients face when trying to access healthcare. Sometimes patients are just embarrassed to seek help advice, uh, especially in areas around sexual health, birth control, and so on. So they just don't, uh, or they're too busy in their daily lives to come to the pharmacy to buy meds, or they just can't afford it. So affordability is a massive issue, right? Uh, especially when it comes to managing chronic illnesses such as diabetes, managing these diseases means a lifetime of care, 
access to things like insulin. Non-compliance to these medicines is well known to be correlated to poor outcomes. And so unfortunately, when a patient cannot afford the care they need, these out poor outcomes seem inevitable. And finally, there was COVID-19. And like everywhere else in the world, this had a big impact on the businesses in Lagos. Um, pharmacies lost a lot of business. They were not equipped to adapt to the pandemic. Patients didn't come anymore to the pharmacies like they used to. A lot of stores lost a significant portion of their customers. 99% of these stores are offline, meaning they only sell in person. So with all this in mind, we asked the pharmacies, you know, would an online solution where that they could tap into and reach customers, um, would that be of interest to them? And of course, it was a resounding yes. So that's how GoMed, our online digital pharmaceutical marketplace, was born. So let me tell you something about GoMed. GoMed's an online digital uh, pharmaceutical marketplace that taps directly into this trust and loyalty that local Nigerian pharmacies have built over the years, being a first point of contact to patients. We work with them and we build partnerships with them that empower these businesses to reach more patients more efficiently online. GoMed gives them that digital tools that they need and so far lacked to offer their products and services to a wider audience. And while the platform itself is a means to an end, it's still the local businesses that are working with local patients. So the benefits here, of course, that patients can buy products and services with the click of a button while they're at home or at work, get their products delivered privately to their home addresses, eliminating the barriers of inconvenience and embarrassment. It's our expectation that pharmacies can increase their sales by more than 50%, benefiting them, but also their patients. But the GoMed uh, platform is more than just a digital uh, pharmaceutical marketplace. We aim to be an online healthcare ecosystem powered by local businesses and local know-how. Um, GoMed offers affordable access to doctors through digital channels. It sports a health tips and blog section aimed at local Nigerian healthcare issues and authored by local experts, and even offers online health tests and quizzes aimed at improving healthcare and health knowledge. So we aim to break many of the barriers that we acknowledged in the primary research. Um, using the network effect of representing many local pharmacies, as well as big data and machine learning. And with our technology, we hope to address the issue of fake and counterfeit products on the market, as well as have a positive impact on medical compliance. The ultimate hope for myself and my team is that with the GoMed platform and the network, we can start to solve the imbalances in access to safe and affordable medicines for patients in Africa, because everyone deserves a chance at a healthy life. Corina, thank you. Absolutely fascinating and be really interesting for our listeners to understand what point you're at on your journey as of now. Are you at the point where you're you're testing this with, um, with pharmacies or are you further along the journey? Exactly. So we're at the point we're piloting this now with selected pharmacies in Nigeria. So we have a pilot running with five key pharmacies and of course running that of course with customers and uh, showing this proof of concept that this is working and, and it's really helping to to address these issues that the pharmacies are facing uh, when it comes to getting their products and their services out to the patients that need it the most when do you expect to kind of have tangible results from this kind of trial phase it should be within the next couple of months Really, really interesting. Now, moving away from Africa and into Europe, you're you're based here with your market access role at Alira Health. And recently, the European Commission adopted new legislation on health technology assessment, otherwise known as HTA. And the legislation, which is deliverable of the EU pharmaceutical strategy, will allow innovative health technologies, including some medicines, medical devices and equipment to be more widely available. 
how do you see this legislation impacting the market access, pricing and reimbursement landscape um, in Europe? Yeah, thanks. That's a really interesting question. So, of course, you're referencing to the joint EU HDA assessments, uh, a process which has been in the making going on 15 years now. Um, basically, this means that instead of each EU member state doing their own assessments, all or part of an assessment can be done at an EU level and the results adopted by the member states. So last year, this policy was adopted by the European Commission and will now be implemented and rolled out piecewise over the next seven years or so, after which it will be then mandatory for all drugs to go through this process if they want access to the European markets. So if successful, of course, this new legislation will uh, hopefully result in a reduction in the duplication of effort that goes into individual country-specific HTA, promote joint cooperation on HTA tools, methodologies, and procedures, and so on, but it also holds the promise of improving the quality of HTA, reducing timelines, and thus improving the speed of access to, to new medicines, and increasing the level of transparency in how medicines are approved. Another important point, though, is that we generally have an imbalance in access to medicines across the EU landscape, and that's partially driven by differing HTA procedures and requirements. So a medicine that's available and fully reimbursed in one EU state may or may not be fully reimbursed and accessible in another. This is a very complicated topic, of course, and it's driven by these differences partially uh, in the HTA environments, and it creates drug access inequalities, and these inequalities go against the idea of a unified Europe. So the joint EU assessment is aimed at, at least partially, to address these issues, right? While the uh, EU HTA assessment is not going to replace national or regional HTA assessments completely, um, as there are still way too many differences on an economical, societal, and ethical level between EU member states. But uh, there is one part of the HTA process that is generally universal and draws from the same evidence base. And that's the assessment of the clinical benefit. So this means, theoretically, it's possible to unite in a, uh, the assessment process of the clinical benefit of a new medicine using a joint assessment framework and a methodology that can be applied across the EU member states. The big question mark that everyone has, of course, though, is will the suspected benefits of a joint assessment of clinical value actually improve access and reduce access imbalances across the EU member states? At the moment, these assessments are not binding for any EU state. So they may still do their own clinical benefit assessments. This may in fact lead to contradictory assessments, increased administration of burden, and may be confusing uh, on different levels. So there's likely to also be different levels of adoption for the well-established HTA markets like Germany or France versus less structured HTA markets like Romania and Bulgaria. So in conclusion, while these uh, joint EU assessments seem like a really good idea on the first impression, and don't get me wrong, I think they are. Like anything new, there will still be bumps in the road and hurdles to overcome. In my role here at Alira Health, we're actually at the forefront of this change. So we currently are serving as external stakeholders and advisors helping to shape this new EU joint clinical assessment policy and guidelines. We are actively working directly with key uh, clients to help them prepare for this brave new world of, of EU-level HTAs, engaging with them to understand how these joint assessments may impact their European access pricing and reimbursement strategies, and helping them find the right strategic decisions to ultimately uh, ensure timely access to patients across the EU states. 
Thank you. Really, again, really interesting. From from your perspective, you know, you talked about um, certain countries not necessarily having to to take up the assessments in this in this manner. Is is there any way that you can see that uptake can be improved um, so that it is done done uh, jointly? Yeah. So there's actually uh, as part of this whole initiative, there's a special body uh, called the Head of Agencies Groups. So the HAG, H A G for short. Um, which are, is actually designed to make sure that there is a smooth transition between this uh, clinical assessments done at the EU level to the country-specific assessments, which will likely still occur, of course. Um, so th- this group is tasked with exactly that. So making sure that the processes that they're implementing on the EU level will kind of complement nicely what is being done on, on the national level, of course. But of course, at the moment, these are still non-binding decisions. Um, the whole uh, assessment of clinical value could be redone uh, on the national level or even regional level in some countries. And this can, of course, uh, create these uh, uncertainties and inconsistencies between access and, and create confusion, ultimately, as well as increased administration burden. Definitely an area to watch then. Now, yep. mo- moving on, um, you've got a strong background in digital health with a particular focus on digital tools and solutions for market access. How are you hoping to use your experience within digital health to achieve your objectives at Alira Health and GoMed? Yeah, indeed I do. Um, so in addition to GoMed, which I, I mentioned earlier, um, in a prior role, I was tasked with leading the digital product development for a suite of digital tools aimed at improving market access. So I firmly believe that there are likely many digital solutions out there that can help us solve many of the healthcare issues that plague society to date. You know using, for example, cryptocurrency or blockchain technology to tackle issues like poor diet, lack of physical exercise, poor health habits like smoking, etc. So at Alira Health, I'm currently leading some internal projects focused at improving uh, market access using innovative and cutting-edge tools. For example, it's becoming less and less useful to communicate solely with stakeholders on the value proposition of a new product uh, using uh, static PowerPoint presentations or long word documents and reports. So at Alera Health, we're, we're experts at thinking outside the box. We're using such tools as video, iPad presentations, or other online digital tools and applications to fine tune value messages and, and value stories, and make sure that our clients are, are giving convincing and fit for purpose messages to their stakeholders. Another project I'm working on at the moment is to develop an unbiased, robust, and reproducible digital framework uh, for understanding the risk and opportunities for early pipeline assets. So if successful, this framework can be applied to multiple situations ranging from launch sequencing decisions, go or no-go decisions, internal feedback that helps shape future clinical trial design and other evidence, gener- evidence generation activities, and even aid in BDNL and acquisition decisions. So in a nutshell, I'm personally and professionally committed to finding strong digital solutions to many of the issues that my clients and ultimately patients uh, face in achieving access, uh, be it here at my work at Alera Health or with my partners at GoMed. Oh, thank you. And it certainly sounds like these uh, the digital tools are certainly enabling or, or seen as an enabler here in terms of helping improve, I guess, patient experience ultimately. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and, and finally, our last question. So you recently taught a course in Amsterdam on driving access to cell and gene therapy treatments with a heavy emphasis on the ethics behind this. Could you give us a synopsis of the content that you delivered? 
Yeah, sure. This uh, actually was in collaboration with the Lewis Business School, which is actually based in Rome, but has an extension in Amsterdam. So they offer several master courses, uh, many of them focusing on pharmaceuticals and healthcare management. So I was asked to give a full day lecture on the topic of access to cell and gene therapies, as you mentioned, and the heavy focus was on ethical considerations of such access. So it's a super complicated topic, as you can imagine, and inspires a lot of intense discussions. Um, part of what I do as a market access consultant is to consider the eth ethical impact that access to medicines, or let's say lack thereof, may have on patients and society as a whole. And often this revolves around the price of said medicines, right? As most of these modern cell and gene therapies are coming in with massive price tags, and they oftentimes focus on rare diseases, sometimes rare diseases in children, and they open many questions, and especially questions around this price tag, which you know may or may not reflect the true value that this cell and gene therapy offers, and which, you know, to be even more complicated, may differ in different patient populations, such as age groups and so on. So this adds up to a lot of financial and, and clinical risk, uh, as well as a lot of interesting, uh, to say the least, ethical conundrums. So in this course, so what we did is we took a look at the history of cell and gene therapies out there. We broke down the science and the diseases that they cover into layman terms, and ultimately discussed you know, the access, pricing, and reimbursement scenarios that were achieved. We used a lot of case studies, we looked at different markets, you know, ranging from EU states to uh, North America and even some Asian markets. Um, we compared and contrasted differing uh, access scenarios, how some companies achieved access, for example, using innovative financial solutions, while in other cases they floundered uh, even when there was a high unmet need for patients. And while in this course I never made myself personally any direct calls on the ethical implications of these access decisions, I left it up to the students to debate and discuss the issues because um, there's really no right or wrong answer sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's really difficult and complex and a lot of gray. Um, and it was really interesting for the students because they all came from different backgrounds and experiences. Some of them worked in access in big pharma companies. Others had, you know, never worked a day in healthcare at all. But all those opinions were and are, of course, valid. So I must say getting the chance to teach this course was very rewarding for me. And uh, really drove home the importance of what I do on a daily basis. Because in the end, if you have an extremely efficacious product addressing a, a disease with a higher med medical need, at the end of the day, if uh, patient access is not achieved, then it's all for nothing. Indeed, indeed. And, and just out of curiosity, you mentioned there about the students and uh, the discussions they had and the conclusions maybe they, they drew. Was there anything that surprised you in terms of the discussions and the outcomes they came to with your, your kind of guidance or or was it what you expected? I mean, the, the, there was really no expectations uh, because everyone came from really different backgrounds. Uh, so they took, a, some of them took completely different views. And as well, the actual discussions were quite intense, I would have to say. So in some cases, we, we sometimes broke into different groups representing different stakeholders in the healthcare chain. Um, for example, the uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, doctors, patients, and the society as a whole. And then they debated their points of view and they came up with a lot of interesting arguments uh, for and against uh, some of these issues. So I have to say, like, uh, it was a very interesting and eye-opening uh, discussions that, that were had. 
Great, thank you. And, and thank you so much for your time today. We've certainly covered a lot of ground all the way from um, your, your platform, GoMed, in Nigeria, all the way through to uh, your work across Europe and, and even the, the details of your course in Amsterdam. So, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you as well. It's been great. Great to hear from Aaron there. And it seems as though there is a lot of potential behind his startup. So we'll watch this space and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that pilot project he mentioned. Now, earlier in the season, you may remember that the team had a discussion about awareness days and how to ensure they achieve impactful and long lasting results. Well, last week on Sunday, the 17th of April, it was World Haemophilia Day, and we have invited a patient advocate with the disease, Lawrence Woolard, onto the podcast to offer his insight. Over to you, Isabel. So, Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show, and how are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm really well, and I'm, I'm tr- honestly really grateful to, um, yeah, to be invited onto the pod. It's, it's super great to be here. Well, we are very pleased to have you on. Now, Lawrence, we've invited you on the podcast today because obviously it was World Haemophilia Day a few weeks ago on the 17th of April. And we're keen to have a chat to you about unmet needs in the disease, how the industry can help and the day itself, of course. So to kick us off, um, I think it's very important to get context in situations like this. Obviously, haemophilia is one of the more well-known rare diseases, but for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with the disease, it'd be great if you could give us a bit of background to start off. Definitely. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like a, a school or, or science textbook, but um, <laughs> I, I'll give it a go. Um, so, so, you know, so you've sort of alluded to it, really, but, but arguably, I think haemophilia is one of the more known rare diseases. Um, it's a lifelong bleeding disorder caused by a change on either the clotting factor 8 gene um, in the case of haemophilia A or factor 9 gene for for haemophilia B on the X chromosome, meaning mainly boys are affected. Now, women um, who have the gene variant for haemophilia and daughters of fathers living with haemophilia, like my mum, have traditionally been labelled as carriers, um, but there's a big push now to use language that recognises their experience as people living with a bleeding disorder. Um, Haemophilia is largely inherited, and I think the stat is around 70% of diagnosed individuals having a positive family history. Um, In terms of prevalence at birth, um, for every 100,000 males, there's six cases of severe haemophilia A and just over one for severe haemophilia B. And the majority of bleeds occur in the musculoskeletal system. So mainly the joints, um, often affecting the elbows, knees and ankles. And recurrent joint bleeding can lead to progressive, irreversible joint damage. And this can have a massive impact on mobility and, and health-related quality of life, um, as well as general well-being. Um, lastly, some some pub quiz knowledge. Um, our community, <laughs> and, and again, your your listeners might might already know this, but um, uh, from their history lessons. But um, our community has a, a connection to the monarchy, um, with haemophilia having figured prominently in in European royalty during the the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, Queen Victoria's youngest son, um, Prince Leopold, was the first diagnosed in family line. Um, And there was also Prince Alexei Romanov, um, son of Tsar Nicholas II, 
great-grandson of Queen Victoria and heir to the Russian throne. Um, unlike Prince Leopold, who died aged 30 from a cerebral hemorrhage, um, Prince Alexei was, was sadly brutally murdered by the Bolsheviks during the, the Russian Revolution in 1918. But actually, you know, there's an important note there that in, in terms of lifespan, um, people living with haemophilia with good access to safer treatment can now expect to, to have a near normal life expectancy. Thank you for that overview and a bit of trivia too. I think that's the first time we've had talk of the Bolsheviks on the podcast, but maybe it won't be the last, who knows. So with context, it is also fantastic to get the personal perspective. So I'd really like to find out a bit about your experience with haemophilia. Yes, yeah, so I really appreciate this. And, and actually, I think it's probably best if I touch on a bit of background first. So haemophilia is in my family. Uh, my granddad, David, spent the majority of his life um, with real no viable treatment options. Um, and the, the modern management of haemophilia really began in the, the 1970s with the commercial production of, of freeze-dried plasma clotting factor concentrates, which made the delivery of treatment possible at home for the first time and the, and the early control of bleeds feasible. Um, but as these products were prepared from pooled donations of human plasma and upwards of 30,000 donations in each lot of product, they're invariably contaminated with, with bloodborne viruses. So as with many of his generation, sadly, we lost Grandad in 1987, age 61, who succumbed mm. to ill health as a consequence of contracting HIV from contaminated blood products. And I think the irony... Uh, being that these products that were supposed to save him from traumatic bleeding and enable him to lead a more fulfilling life would eventually kill him. Mm. And there is a statutory public inquiry ongoing in the UK to scrutinise the past decisions and events and ultimately, um, you know, uncover the truth, you know, that, that campaigners within the infected and affected community have been, you know, searching for for decades um, of what is, you know, a humanitarian disaster at a level not seen within the NHS. Well, yes, I think that is a very apt way to put it. And I imagine having had something like that happen in your family and in your in your heritage that would have had an impact on the decisions you've made since. Um, obviously, you are a person living with haemophilia, but you are also a patient advocate for haemophilia. Um, so I'd love to know a little bit about how that journey evolved, how you got into advocacy in the way you are today. No, I, I really appreciate that. And it was really through like a, an iterative process of, of, you know, sort of heightening my own self-awareness um, and, and critical consciousness, you could say, um, mm. that I developed this kind of strong sense of personal agency and, and social injustice, actually, and how the, the state values the lives of, of my peers and I affected by long-term conditions, um, you know, which I've really tried to channel into positive action. Um, having initially volunteered with the National Haemophilia Patient Group here in the UK and, and the patient network at my clinical centre, um, 
I ended up moving to Brussels um, in 2016 to, to work for an umbrella patient advocacy organisation called the European Patients Forum or, or EPF, where I delivered an awareness raising initiative on stigma and discrimination faced by young people living with long-term conditions entering employment. So this was my, you know, first taste of engaging with and influencing policymakers right in the heart of European politics. Then in 2017, I um, launched my independent consultancy on The Pulse. Um, So we partner with public and commercial healthcare organisations at national and global levels to improve patient access to culturally responsive educational programs in rare disease. Through that, I've I've been fortunate to publish several thought leadership articles and journal manuscripts on the theory and practice of engaging patients in their own care, um, challenging the status quo and and making evidence-informed treatment choices as part of a patient-centred model of practice. Fascinating to hear. And the phrase you used just there, patient-centred model, obviously this is a very key key phrase for the pharmaceutical industry, patient-centricity. So I would love to hear your perspective. Obviously, you are a very engaged person with the disease. Um, but when I was doing a bit of research for this podcast, I discovered that there's actually a bit of a knowledge gap. There was a survey that came out that said 98.7% of people with haemophilia and their carers feel like they could have more information about the disease. So what are your thoughts on that, first of all? And then perhaps we could move on to where you think pharma can help. Uh, It's a really great question. And straight away, I would rephrase this to consider education in the broader sense. Mm. Really over the past five years or so that the haemophilia community, or at least those individuals where developed healthcare systems exist, um, has witnessed, you know, this, this, raft of new era products Um, and this progress looks set to continue with the anticipated approval of the first gene therapies for haemophilia this year Mm -hmm. so whilst these newer treatment strategies are and have the potential of transforming outcomes you know offering my peers and I greater protection from bleeding combined with like I just said you know this reduction in treatment burden I think paradoxically, the speed of innovation is leading or has led to a widening gap in patients' treatment knowledge and comprehension. And that, you know, potentially threatens individuals' autonomy, thus their dignity, and inhibits their decision-making capacity when encountering preference-sensitive treatment choices. You know, for the patient being asked, uh, you know... (laughs) Do you have any questions in respect of their care? It's it's totally meaningless if they haven't been exposed. You know, what I would say haven't been exposed to age and developmentally appropriate educational opportunities to cultivate that level of self-confidence and help develop the skills required to formulate and make an informed response. And critical to this is investment in health promotion activities that help develop patients' health and digital literacy skills for them to seek out, comprehend, and use reliable and evidence-based information to inform their health decisions. So it's about education rather than information. I really like that. So what I was going to ask next was, how can pharma get involved in this? What does the community want to see from the industry, perhaps that they're not seeing at the moment? 
there's been many social media campaigns and, and standalone initiatives, often supported by pharma, you know, mm. in partnership with patient groups. And that, again, that's very reflective of that sort of European model of advocacy. Um, and, you know, they've been devoted to raising awareness. Those campaigns have been you know, devoted to raising awareness of, of haemophilia and addressing educational needs around components of, of self-management and new treatments. While I welcome these and, and have formally engaged with some pharma-sponsored health promotion campaigns myself, um, these, these only scratch the surface in their function and utility to empower and inform people living with haemophilia who may differ in their ability to learn and will respond, you know, to varying forms and delivery of content in diverse ways. And also many of these activities will more than likely be consumed by the same groups of engaged patients who are already cognizant of the value of knowledge acquisition. Mm. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Judith Hibbard's work around patient activation and the evidence shows us that you know less activated consumers tend to be more passive about their health so we're talking about passive recipients of their care whereas it is those higher activated consumers who respond to new health opportunities to engage with health issues and I witnessed this with my own eyes you know in terms of seeing you know, the same names and faces turning up to educational webinars, events, roundtables and conferences, etc. So I think pharma sponsors should be really mindful not to simultaneously risk further marginalising those who are not currently engaged or activated or in possession of high levels of health literacy with the projects that they facilitate whether it's in partnership with patient groups, healthcare professionals or other stakeholders. So instead of reactive one-off activities that are very transactional in their nature and you know more than likely correspond with a specific product launch, industry should be taking a long-term view in their commitment to and support of education as part of a unified community agenda or strategy that seeks to address patients' knowledge gaps and priorities um, while reducing barriers to engagement, particularly for those socioeconomically disadvantaged and seldom heard cohorts. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And we actually did a podcast quite recently about awareness days and the importance of making awareness days very impactful and how people can go about doing that. And something that really struck me was uh, something one of our contributors said, which was, it's important to create a movement, not a moment. Um, And that's just all about that kind of longevity of awareness, which I think is so important in especially rare diseases. I couldn't agree more. And that's a really, really lovely way of putting it. Now, talking of Awareness Days, obviously one of the key reasons we've had you on today, Lawrence, is because it was World Haemophilia Day a couple of weeks ago, like I mentioned. So to round off the podcast today, it would be fantastic if you could tell me some of your key takeaways from the day for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, World Haemophilia Day, it's always a a special occasion to to unite in solidarity and, and raise global awareness of not just haemophilia, but all inherited bleeding disorders amongst the general public and with decision makers at a national level. But I think more than anything, World Haemophilia Day is dedicated to those in the community who who are still without adequate access to treatment. 
And it's quite remarkable that when looking at the last annual global survey they conducted for 2020, resource-constrained countries comprise of over 60% of the world's population. And by extension, over 60% of the world's individuals living with haemophilia, yet 88% of total factor eight consumption is in high and upper middle income countries. So there's huge inequities in access to care still to address. Well, yes. And I think the theme was access for all, partnership policy and progress. And I think that really sums up everything you're saying there, Lawrence. So thank you very much. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on and hear your perspective. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. Now, thanks to Isabel and Lawrence for that discussion. It was great to hear a patient's perspective on some of those really important issues. So lots of insightful nuggets for the industry in there. Absolutely. And as the year goes on, we'll be inviting more patient advocates onto the podcast to share their perspectives. So do look out for more of these conversations in upcoming episodes. Sadly, that's all we have time for this week. But thank you so much to Aaron Grandy, Lawrence Woolard, and Isabel, of course, for joining us for today's episode. It's been great to dig into such a fantastic range of topics. Indeed it has. We'll be back next week with another jam-packed episode and do remember to head over to the Gold website to check out the brand new issue of Gold magazine. There's something for everyone in the latest issue out today. I couldn't agree more. So thank you very much and we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.